Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos. getting rougher and rougher so they asked him what should we do to you to make the sea come down for us he replied pick me up throw me into the sea and it will become calm I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you instead the men did their best to row back to land but they could not for the sea grew even wilder than before Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, good morning, everyone. Good morning, church. Um, thank you, Uncle Yap. Um, it's good to see everyone in person service. Um, so if you are new here, thank you also for joining us in our current sermon series, Jonah and the Big Fish. Um, <laughs> Just kidding. Um, outrageous grace, God, and the unlikely in the story of Jonah. Yes. So you see, for four Sundays now, um, we've been in the storm with Jonah. We've seen how we should act when we think God is wrong. We've seen how to face raging storms, how to get salvation without merits, um, and how real peace and true unity um, is achieved despite the divisions caused by life storms. Um, See, today is the day when the storm ends. Today is the day when we sing, storm is over, like we saw in the text. Today is the day when Jonah is swallowed (laughs) by the big fish. Yeah, so this someone is titled, for real, like Jonah and the big fish. Um, (laughs) No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But let me tell you how you can be rightly obsessed with this big fish. Like, being obsessed with big fish is not really a bad thing. You see, there was a time in, like, Eastern Europe, you know, it was once the fashion in Eastern Europe, where pulpits would be in the shape of an upright whale. Like, they formed them in form of a whale. And I read in a book recently. Those Eastern, those, some of the, you still find some of those whale pulpits now in, like, Poland, in, like, Poland, in, like, Croatia, in Czechia. So, you see, these ones are not the real ones, though. These ones are the newest ones, the ones that you still find available, 18th century stuff. So, you see, the pastor would enter through the 
like you enter the interior of the pulpit at the base, then it will climb a ladder through the belly, and then it will come into the open mouth of the pulpit like this, and then deliver the someone. PFC pulpits now. What's this? What's this PFC? So I know, please glass. Where is the format of this pulpit in the Bible, Pastor? This pulpit is not scriptural. Even if we can't have whale pulpits, can we have boats pulpits? Pastor C, Pastor C is one. Okay, let uh, see. Wedding. Just said, see people. Uh-uh. Jesus preached from a boat. We saw it in the Gospels. Scriptural pulpits. You see, jokes aside, the whale pulpit or the boat pulpit, pulpit is not more Christian than this glass one. You see, the whale one is just a symbol. And what does it mean? Of course, it's inspired by Jonah's story, right? But what does it point to? You see, Eugene Peterson, the author of the Message Bible, says this. The belly of the fish was the unattractive opposite to everything Jonah set out for. The belly of the fish was a dark, dank, and probably stinking cell. So Jonah wanted to go to Tashish, where he could do as he wants, where he could be free. But here at the end of our text, what do we see? He was stuck in the belly of a big fish. Jonah wanted to go to Tashish, where he could live his life to the fullest, traveling on the limitless expanses of the sea. But here, he was as good as dead. The sailors killed him. You see in verse 14, they killed him. They said, killing this man. The belly of the fish could, have well, could as well have been Jonah's coffin or Jonah's mortuary. So as the preacher walks through the belly of the whale puppet, he realizes that this is a risky, this is a dangerous endeavor. I'm as good as that. This is a life or death situation. Only God's outrageous grace can save me or save the people I'm preaching to. Jonah was scared, was angry, he ran away from the belly of the beast that was preaching to the people of Nineveh as Pastor Femi showed us. That was like a serious risky situation. But then he still ended up in this same belly of the fish, another kind. What he feared so much still caught up with him. In life, we are all driven by fears. The greatest, the most fundamental of which is the fear of death. And see what the author of, of the Hebrews says. Author of Hebrews. He says this. He says in verse 15. He says, those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I like the message translation. The message says, those who cower, cower, cower hmm, through life, Scared to death of death. Please tell me the correct pronunciation for second service. <laughs> like Jonah, we run away from God because we fear death. Like the sailors, we run to other gods because we fear death. You see, you will mess up your life. You will keep messing up your life. You keep arriving at dead ends if you don't know how to deal with this fear of death. So this morning, as I step out of my own imaginary whale pulpit, you know, on the mouth now, I want to talk about two things from this text. Our fear of death and how to deal with it, fear of God. Fear of death, fear of God. Fear of death. Verse 4. In verse 4 of Jonah 1, we see that a violent storm arose that threatened to break the ship. 
He said, this was so, see, he was so strong that he threatened to break the ship. In verse 6, see what the captain of the ship said to Jonah. Get up, man. Get up. Call to your God so that we may not perish. So that we may not die. You see, they didn't want to die. That was the fear of death right there. You see, it was so bad. It was so haunting. The sailors were trying everything possible. They were trying any god possible. Call on your own god. We tried call on our own gods. They threw, they threw cargo overboard. They did anything. As if it couldn't get worse. Look at in verse 11. What do we see? He said, now, from our text, in verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. Death was staring them in the face. You know, like, man, I showed us. Have you, you guys have seen Titanic, right? Don't be like Imao. Imao has not seen Titanic. Uh, me too, I've not seen it. <laughs> but according to what I have heard from people that have seen it, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. If you have gone to Takwa Bay with us before, <laughs> we just go to Takwa Bay. Last time we went to Takwa Bay, you see, we, the, the ride was so bumpy. It's not usually like that. Like, the ride was so bumpy. And then there was an elder in our midst. There was one of the boats. The elder and one of that younger lady, you know, they were, you know, on top of their boys. Like, you know, you know this kind of, you know how you're scared that you just be laughing? <laughs> this boat. <laughs> oh, God, thank you, Jesus. You know that kind of scare? Holding <laughs> <laughs> oh, hands. So imagine multiple times of that. This was what was happening on this ship. Multiple times of that. And then you now have like water pouring from the sea. You have rain falling. You have like lightning striking. You have like thunder. God wouldn't allow that elder and that sister to be in a storm. <laughs> See, we live in an age, but this is the thing. See, that is real. But we live in an age where we don't want to talk about death until it's in our face. Now, even myself, when I was trying to pray this sermon, I didn't set out to preach this sermon at all. This was not what I had. What I felt this sermon was about, this was not what I felt the text was about. It was as if God sent a great wind. Because death is a taboo, right? You know, my mind was like, I want to teach people how to live. You no, know, God is like, I want to keep them from dying first. Chill. And know, when you talk to like your older person or a parent, like my mom or my dad, when I call them and I'm talking, I try to like, you know, when you talk about death, like, ah, it depends, you know. She say, No, you will not die, you know, but live to declare. This is not your portion. It's about the inevitability of death cannot be avoided. It cannot be ignored. Take this year. Take this country alone, for instance. You see, if COVID doesn't kill you, a tanker explosion will take you. If a tanker explosion does not take you, a bad S-man will take you. If an S-man does not take you, a rapist will take you. If a rapist does not take you, an helicopter crash will crash into your house where you are seated, JJ, and take you. If that does not take you, a rogue SARS officer will take you. And we're not even talking about death by terminal illnesses. We're not talking death by cancer. We're not talking about natural death. We're not talking about accidents. We're not even talking about all of that. We're not talking about both mishaps. You see, there is real, and this fear, it drives us. See, N.S. Becker is the author of a Pulitzer Prize winning book. Like, he won the Pulitzer Prize. And his book is called The Dying of Death. He says... The idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death. It is the main reason you see traffic on Koilin Bridge, 
not the traffic of cars, but traffic of people in track suits. Early in the morning, 6 a.m. 45 year old, 50 year olds, trying to extend their life, trying to ensure that in good so they don't die. This is what is it is what drives us to sometimes name our children after us. Name them Junior. Name them exactly your name. So that by some chance, you extend your legacy, you extend your life, or will become immortal by them bearing your name. You see, it haunts us. And we can't deny it. Even when we don't want to talk about it, we still want to talk about it. Oh, my mom will say, ah, you shall not die, but live to declare works of God. But then she will send me WhatsApp videos of one woman that beats her house up to death. She's enamored by it. There's a mystery. There's a fear there. Or our grandparents in those days will listen to Nkombe late in the night, 10 o'clock, 11 p.m., because they're going to be hearing all of this story. That was our own final destination. That was our own 1,000 ways to die. <laughs> the punch, the sun will cover stories like, oh, brother shoots brother dead at father's funeral because of poverty. Action movies, the one where the actor is always killing many people. Those ones thrillers, those are the ones that sell the most. We tell our kids, we can't talk about death around them, but our kids enjoy killing them in video games. Death is around us. We are enamored by it. This has got some kind of power. As we try to pull away from it, it pulls at us still. We want to avoid it, but we can't avoid it. We, want to, we don't want to talk about it, but we want to talk about it. We want to see it, but we don't want to see it. You see, it's like the fear you have when you get to that point in the movie, in the thriller, where the actor's about to die, the actor you love so much. When you run outside of the room and say, did they kill him? Did they kill him? You come again. Ah, did not kill him? Or you go back. Or when you're watching penalty shootouts, you, you go outside. Hey! It is spellbinding. Death is Nina Simone singing, I put a spell on you. It is so powerful. You see, the author of Hebrews said, he said, you see, we are, we are living in fear of death, living our lives daily, going, driving us in different ways, how we think, how we feel, how we act. But why is it so powerful? So powerful that we fear it so much. So powerful that we fear it so much in a way that it shapes everything we do. You see, this is true whether you admit it or not. This is true whether you are a Christian or not. And for a number of reasons. But there was one reason we've been seeing over the past few weeks in the second and third sermon, in second and third sermon for instance, is that that reason could be the fear of losing what we have. You know, as Manet showed us, as Pastor showed us, oh, you built your life around a fine career. Oh, you have all these friends, or you have these loved ones, you have these people that you love, and then if you die or if they die, death just snatches them all of a sudden. And if you've made them your life's meaning, if you build your life's purpose around them, death is like a raging storm that is threatening to break your sheep. So you're scared of it. So you live with the fear of losing what you have. This is the fear of death. So whether you feel like you're in a life or death situation or not, you are. We all are in a life or death situation like those guys on the sheep. But there is something more at play in Jonah 1 and in our text today. Another way that the fear of death manifests in our lives, whether you're young or old, whether you're sick or you're elderly, what is this? You see, it is the fear of being judged or condemned for what you have done. 
And I want to take us straight to our text. Look at verse 7 and 8 of the text. See what the sailors were saying. The sailors were saying, verse 7 and 8, not in this text, but verse 7 and 8 we've read earlier. You see, verse 7 and 8, the sailor was saying, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible. They know that somebody has done something wrong. Somebody has done something that would have brought this evil. There is somebody here. Like, we are not only in this ship. We, we obviously have done things that are wrong. All of us here are, in, are not innocent. Then there's one of us that has brought this upon ourselves. See, these sailors knew that they were not good guys. They may not be running from God like Jonah, but they are far from God. What does Psalm 73 verse 27 tells us? He says, those who are far from God will perish. He says, see, come, cry your God so that we will not perish. God, Psalm 73 says, you see, you will destroy those who are unfaithful to you. They are their own gods. They are not worshippers of God. They are not holy people. So they were so bothered. Death was staring them in the face. Their bad deeds, their bad deeds were haunting them. It was urgent. And if you've read biographies, or you've attended funerals, or you know you spent time with people that were approaching death, you will know that there are often feelings of guilt that rise to the surface of their lives as their lives are about to come to an end. Guilt for things that they have not said. Guilt for things that they have not done to those that they love. Guilt of kindnesses that they have not shown. Guilt for those who they have hurt, for those who they have not forgiven, for those who they have not treated well. Guilt for how they may have not spent their life well or wisely. You see, these terrible things that we've done all our lives, we carry this sense of nagging condemnation all our lives. Not just when we die, all our lives. But somehow, we manage to suppress them. We live through life pretending, trying to make up for it. People may think, oh, people may think that you're good, but deep down, you know that you're, you're bad. You know you've done bad things. You know you do bad things. You know that, ah, something is coming. I may pay for this thing. I don't want, like, how, how is it going to happen? The horrible things that you've said to your dad, or to your brother, or to your uncle, or the ones you've said to your child. You know that there are Christians dying in the north, and you know that you can do more. You know you should do more. You know you should, at least if you don't have, you can pray more, but you don't. You just find yourself not doing it. These guilt, these feelings of being judged or being condemned for what you've done or what you've not done, residing beneath, and we are suppressing them. Or wicked things that we've done. Wicked thoughts that go on in our mind that we can never share with anyone. Not even with a father in the closest. You can't still share. You see, those 90% that you don't share in GC meetings. You have, people say you are vulnerable. I just love that sister. She's vulnerable. She just talks. She motivates me. But you've only given them 10%. The 90% very many you can't share. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12, Jonah 2. Look at Jonah 2. Jonah says, I know that it is my fault that this storm has come upon you. I know it is my I know that it's my fault. He knew how bad, how wrong he was, how guilty he was. Things you've done to people and you are trying and you've been trying to make up for it, but you can't. You should have spent more time with your child, but you focused on your career. Abortions that you've carried out or abortions you've made someone carry out. And you can't make up for it. Some of us have tried to wave it off. You know, you can't tell others. You feel like, eh, 
mean, that's that nobody is perfect. That's how we all are. But it's nagging you in your soul. These feelings are holding on to your shirt like the Nollywood wife, the old Nollywood wife, holding on to the shirt of your husband as he's going out in the morning, telling him, you will not go anywhere if you don't give me soup money. And your husband is saying, leave my shirts. Leave my shirts. Are we not? If you want to kill me, kill me. And you two respond. I will beat up this woman. She said, oh, yeah, now beat me. But you are not going anywhere. My soup money. And these feelings of death, this fear of death, and our guilt and the things we've done holding on to us. How do we try to deal with these things? How do we try to shed them off? How do we try to knock them away? This text shows us a false method that we often employ. Look at our verse 7 and 8 again. He said, what do we do? You know, we victimize others, or we play victims, or we judge others, or we try to escape from it. Look at verse 7 and 8. He said, who is responsible? They are looking for someone to blame. They are looking for someone to bear the moral responsibility. They've collected TFL from Jonah. Because in verse 3 or 2, we say, Jonah entered his ship and he paid his TFL. So take Jonah to where he's going. Like, your job is not to say who is responsible. Your job is to take us to the, to the destination. What is your problem with drive the ship? They were looking for someone to blame. Look at verse 10. They looked at Jonah. They said, what have you done? an alarm cry. What kind of person are you? Verse 11. What should we do to you to make the sea come down for us? It wasn't about Jonah. It was about them. For us. And even when Jonah told them what to do, Jonah said, throw me overboard. Look at what they're doing. He said, they did their best to row back to land. They tried hard to maintain their innocence. They tried hard to maintain their sense of innocence. They tried hard to save themselves. You know, this can be especially hard. Especially when someone has done something wrong. Someone, someone has hurt you so much. Someone has, someone has done wicked to you. Like, the only way you can rescue yourself from it is you try to see how bad the person is, how terrible the person is, you know, and... By doing that, you put yourself in a place of innocence, as if you are not a sinner, as if you don't have flaws, as if you don't have wrongs. But these guys are killers. These guys are murderers that don't want to serve their time. They will take a man's life to save theirs. Look at verse 14. You say, do not hold us accountable for taking this man's life. Ah, you want to take a man? He's saying, please, don't let us die for taking this man's life. They will take a man's life to bring calm and order to their lives and to their world. The father or the mother will say, it is these children that I gave back to that ended my career. If not for them, I wouldn't have gone far. The Yahoo boy will say, it is because these colonialists, these white men, these foreigners have come to take our money, and I'm just taking the money back. The citizen will say, it is because government has not done what they should do. That is why I will never pay my taxes. As a preacher, I may say, it is the burden of ministry that made me assault vulnerable women. All the people that I've had to care for. Well, is it Jonah that caused the danger? Yes. 
Is it not Eve that made Adam to eat the fruit? Yes. But it could have been the sailor's storm too. Because the sailors were as guilty as Jonah. It could have been, in another day, it could have been God sending the storm for in, because of the sailors. Today is Jonah, tomorrow it could be them. Look at Jonah too. Jonah playing a victim. They said, Jonah, call on your God. Jonah said, Jonah did not call on the God. They said, who is responsible? They were casting lots. Who is responsible? Jonah did not say anything. Jonah did not recommend what they can do to make the sea calm down, to save them. It is when they now asked, eventually, what should we do to make to you to make the sea calm down for us? And I said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Why did he not jump into the sea himself? <laughs> he, made, see, he made the sailors feel so bad. No, look at it. You've not seen it, though. You've not seen anything, though. He made the fellows feel so bad that they tried their best to row back to land to drop him off, possibly. That's not what ended, though. He played the part so well that the sailors called him an innocent man. In verse 14, the sailors and Jonah playing the game so well, dealing with their guilt by maintaining a sense of innocence. And see what a cultural anthropologist, Wilfred McClay, says. Smart guy, study this stuff. See what he said in his article, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Long quote, but I want us to go through it line by line. So if one wishes to be accounted innocent, one must find a way to make the claim that one cannot be held morally responsible. This is precisely what the status of victimhood accomplishes. When one is a certifiable victim, one is released from moral responsibility. Since a victim is someone who is by definition not responsible for his condition, but can point to another who is responsible. But victimhood at its most potent promises not only release from responsibility, but an ability to displace that responsibility onto others. As a victim, one can project onto another person, the victimizer or oppressor, any feelings of guilt he might abhor, and in projecting that guilt, lift it from his own shoulders. The result is an astonishing reversal, in which the designated victimizer plays the role of the scapegoat upon whose head the sin comes to rest, and who pays the price for it. By contrast, in appropriating the status of victim or identifying oneself with victims, the victimized can experience a profound sense of moral release, of recovered innocence. I had a girlfriend once. <coughs> she was the knight in my shining armor in my movie. She was the knight in shining armor in my movie. And like one of my one comedian guy would say, you see, <clears throat> a lady will break your heart and you will stitch it back. She will break your heart, you will stitch it back. She will break your heart, to stitch it back. It will start looking like those floor, those designer tile floor that you go and see some people's house, patched together, like bouquet of fine something. But then, this lady 
broke my heart, broke it into pieces, broke it, smashed it into pieces, put it inside mortar, ground it, ground it into powder, then I blew it away. I became heartless. I blamed her, I hated her, I, I wished the worst for her. I didn't just eat, I ate women. I'll be going on the road, I'll look at this one. Who knows, I've cheated on All women are scum. I tried to roll back to land by digging. You know, because when, when the Bible says that they, they try to roll back to land, he said they, it's like you are digging through the water, into the sea to go back. I was digging, did everything I could, labored, ate that. I kept burying myself, pointing at her. And is this not one of the major problems of our modern society? Patriarchy FC feels that they are innocent. Feminists say that they are innocent. Yeah, they are victims. Right. Whites say that they are innocent. The blacks think that they are innocent. Huh? These guys can't work hard. No, these guys abuse their power. We victimize the other. Is this not the, what is responsible, mostly responsible for a phenomenon like the call-out culture? where we've adopted this us and them, this victim and abuser mentality, where we've reduced complex human beings to simple good versus evil, and then we publicly shame them till they lose their jobs, their communities, everything. We put tires on their necks. We put fuel on them and set them on fire. Like the sailors, we enforce societal norms by murdering the bullies who break them. See what David Brooks says. Right on New York Times. It says, once you adopt binary thinking in which people are categorized as good or evil, once you give random people the power to destroy, random, that means people that are also good, people that are not flawed, people that are flawed, people that are, when you give them the power to destroy lives without any process, you have taken a step toward the Rwandan genocide. Even the quest for justice can turn into barbarism if it is not infused with what? A quality of mercy, an awareness of human frailty, and what? A path to redemption. Yes, when systems that are supposed to help us are broken, jungle justice may get the job done. But in the long term, does it? Oh, let's leave that. Oh, in the long term, does it help us to calm the raging storm of death in our souls? Does it? Does it help to quell the nagging sense of guilt and fear of condemnation that we have? Does it? In verse 13, as they try to roll back to land, what does it say? Is it they did their best to roll back to land, but they couldn't. For what? For the sea grew even wilder. That is what all of our condemning others, trying to play victim, that is what he does. He just keeps making the sea grow wilder, wilder in the world and in our hearts. So how do we find this path to redemption? 
How does this storm calm down for us? We all are like the sailors asking, what should we do to make this storm calm down? That brings us to the final point. Fear of God. And verse 15 to 17a goes on to say, oh, look at what it says. From verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Save him, save us. Salvation for both. Sailors and Jonah. But I want to see something here. See something about the Lord. This is what we have to first understand about the fear of God and how we deal with this fear of death, this fear of guilt, of judging, of doing all these things. You see, from Jonah 1, from verse 1, all the way down to the end, see what we are saying about the Lord. You see, it was the Lord that sends the word to Jonah. It was the Lord that sent Jonah to where he was going. It was the Lord that sent the storm in verse 3. You see, it was the Lord that made the sea and the dry land as Jonah told the people when he asked him. You see, it was the Lord in 17a that sent the huge fish to swallow Jonah. Look at what the guys say about, about the Lord in that verse. Look at what they are praying. They said, the Lord does as he pleases. See, sometimes you feel guilty. Sometimes you feel innocent. Sometimes you do something good and you think you are good. Sometimes you do something that is evil and you think you are evil. Sometimes the mob, the people will say you have done evil, or they will say you are evil when you've done evil. Sometimes they will say you are evil when you've done good. Sometimes they will say you are, you are, you are good when you have done evil. Like lawyers, it's as if two people are just arguing against themselves in the courts before a judge. No, this is person's right. No, this person's right. That is what our lives are. Oh, we are asking ourselves with the way I am, with the way I look. With the kind of money in my bank account, with how my shape is, will anybody really accept me? Will I really fit in? Will I become, oh, oh I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. Who's going to, we're judging ourselves. We're constantly judging ourselves as every people are judging us. We're constantly evaluating ourselves. But look at what it says. It says that even the best, see, but the Lord does as he pleases. He is the one that is not moved by anything. He is the one that moves things. He is the judge in the court that screams order. He is the one who can give the final verdict. He is the one who can harm you. And he is the one that can save you. You see what the fear of God is? The fear of God is knowing that the one who can put you to death is the one who can save you. In Mark 6, 47 to 51, the disciples were on a boat and the wind was strong. There was a storm. There was a storm on the boat. It was blowing. Blue, blue. And then what, did, what happened? And then the guy saw a ghost. It was about to pass them. You see, just before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. It was about to pass them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. The Lord is the one who can say, is the one who has the judgment, the power to say whether you are innocent or not. 
is the one who has the power to clear you of all charges. Is the one who has the power to sentence you to life imprisonment. Can you see that this is a life or death situation? So what do you do when you stand before a God like this? What do you do when you stand before a God who knows, who says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? A God who says that there is no one that is righteous, not even one. A God that when he looks down upon Dangote and the beggar, he says, fundamentally, I don't see their wealth or their poverty. I see two hard-boiled sinners. When he looks down at Beyonce and on you, he doesn't really see the beauty that is there, but he sees deep down, these are two hell-bound sinners. When he looks down at me, the preacher, and, and you, what does he see? These are guilty. These are, these are deserving of damnation. So what are you going to say? Are you going to be saying, but I've done many good things. You see, I'm not a bad person. When deep down you know who you are, you are saying, please, you see, you, are, you, are, you, are you going to say, please, Lord, do not let me die for taking this man's life? Are you going to admit your guilt? Are you going to admit your sinfulness? Are you going to admit your fear of being judged? See, the men did not say, look, look at the text. Go back to our text. The men did not say, do not let us die because of the sin of Jonah. It's Jonah that caused them, but he don't say, say, do not let us die for the sin of Jonah. No, they didn't say that. They didn't say, do not let us die because of what Jonah has done. They were not even saying, do not let us die because we don't deserve to die. No, they cried, do not let us die for what we have done. To deal with these fears of being judged or being condemned, you need to say, I am bad and guilty, and sinful, and I deserve to be judged. I deserve to die. Even the many of my good, the many of my innocent intentions has led to harm for many people. If I was in my mother's position, I wouldn't have done the same. If I was in the governor's position, if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't have done worse. Fear of God grows. See, fear of God is knowing that... that <laughs> Fear of God is knowing that the one who can put you to death and save you deserves to put you to death. The man said, do not hold us accountable for taking this man's life. So who is going to be held accountable? So who is going to pay? Who is going to drop the soup money? Who is going to die the death that he should die? The guys then took Jonah and they threw him overboard. They killed him. My ex. Did she, did she cheat on me? Yes. Did she break her word to me? Yes. Was I supposed to be in painful turmoil as a result? Yes. But have I not broken my word before? Even if not to her, to many others? Many times. Yes. Have I caused anyone or people pain? Yes. But for months, as I hated her, as I wished her ill in my heart, I was stripping her. I was spitting in her face. I was whipping her. I was slapping her face. I was piercing her with a spear. I was putting thorns on her head. I was giving her vinegar. I was nailing her hands. I was nailing her feet. I was crucifying her. At first, 
I got some pleasure. I felt innocent. The more I made her feel guilty. But after a while, I began to feel enslaved. Even if I had been perfect up until that point, look at the evil. Look at the evil way that I was responding. I had fallen below my own standards. I was not good enough. I was guilty. What wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body that is subject to death? I've read a story that this same Dave Brooks wrote about of the call-out culture. The article is called The Cruelty of the Call-out Culture. And then this lady, Emily, she's a punk, punk, punk band leader and she had a best friend who was a punk band leader and it came out that he had sent a nude photo to one of his fans. Best friend, she denied him. He said, no, I believe women. She wrote a scathing article. They took this guy's job away from him. They sent him away from his apartment. They stopped him from the punk scene. The guy lost everything he had. Ten years later, someone wrote an article about Emily. Emily herself, when she was in high school, had sent a pair, a pair. They are doing like this funding, they are good, you know, just sending something online. And someone has sent a nude photo, and then she sends an emoji making fun of the person. Oh, they wrote now a scattering rebuke about Emily. They finished her. They took her job away from her. They took her family, her friends. Her friends did not talk to her. She lived in her house for what seemed like months. She said at the end of it, he said, I do not feel like I'm a person anymore. I feel like a monster. They interviewed the guy that took Emily down. They said, oh, why do you do this? They said, see, I feel so good. I feel so much pleasure having done this to her. And when they traced his life, they found out that this guy himself has suffered guilt, he has suffered evil. His father beat him every time when he was young. Can you see what happens? When there is no sense of the human cruelty, when we lose our sense of proportion, there's no room for apology, there's no room for forgiveness. We are trapped, we're enslaved, we're cowering, we're living in death. We are looking for someone that would die for us. We are looking for someone that we can hang on the, on the tree. We are looking for someone that would die for us. You see, we need someone that is innocent. Someone that has never done any evil to us or anybody. Someone that has innocent thoughts. Someone that has innocent actions. Someone that has innocent feelings. Someone that can condemn and still be innocent. That can condemn us and still be innocent. They called Jonah an innocent man, but we know he wasn't. He too needed someone. God had to send a big fish to save him. We need someone that can say, unlike Jonah, I know it is not my fault that this storm has come upon you. We need someone that we call, that we call thoroughly, that we can thoroughly examine and find nothing in him to condemn us. We need someone that has done nothing to make us feel innocent or less guilty. We need someone that in him, the judge can say, this one is innocent. Someone that even if we try our best to make him look guilty, he will still not condemn us to defend his innocence. What we also need is someone that will say, I know it is not my fault that this storm has come upon you, but pick me up and throw me into the sea. Someone that will say to God, please hold me accountable for their evil. Please do not let these people die for taking my life. There's someone like that. 
Thanks be to God. Romans 7. Thanks be to God. 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 Who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Hebrews 2 verse 14 to 15. What does it say? Since the children have flesh and blood, it will share in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the death that he died. The judgment we deserve, he broke the power of death over us. He was thrown into the worst storm ever, so why should we fear death? He died the death that we should die. You see, for real, Pastor Femi, I don't need, I don't need a whale puppet. I don't need a boat puppet. See what I need. See what Augustine says. See what I need. See what I need. The cross is the puppet where Christ preached his love to the world. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Would you accept this love? Would you come to the cross? Would you forget Tashish? If you're going to go to Tashish, you would have to pay T-Fair, but come to the cross. There's no T-Fair to be paid. The Lord makes the provision. You can't experience this love and still bear the weight of, oh, is my CV good enough? Oh, am I looking good enough? No, this person loves you so much. He doesn't like he's died for you. He doesn't care about that. He's died the day that he should die. You can you will still fight for justice. You will still call people out when they are wrong. But you will do it knowing that people are people are guilty, knowing that you are as guilty as them, that it's only the grace of God that has saved you. You will still want to do good things for God with good intentions. But you won't have the fear of failing because Christ has been judged for your failures already. This is the perfect love that casts out fear. And if you're not experiencing this, you may say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not experiencing this kind of love. I'm not feeling it. I don't fear God like this. I can't deal with death like this. See what it says. The text, it says, are these, they greatly feared the Lord. And what did they do? Vow, sacrifice. I want you to press on in the things that will remind you of what Christ has done for you. In prayer, in worship, in community. And this is how you know if it's working. This is how you know if you're sensing the love. This is how you know if the fear is growing in you. Oh, as you begin to see, you begin to see, you read God's word, you commence, you begin to say, you begin to know more and more. This is what you, you're not, you begin to know more and more. You say, ah, I'm bad. I'm a bad person. I'm a guilty person. I'm a terrible person. Ah, I can cheat on my wife. I can cheat. I know. It's only God's grace. You see, I know that I can be gay. They like, they look at people that are gay. Am I like look at them exactly? I can be gay. I know that I can be gay. But it's God's grace. It is God's grace that's kept me. It is God's grace that saved me. Fear of God is knowing that the one who can put you to death and save you deserves to put you to death, but he saved you. By putting himself to death. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.